Hello, everybody, and welcome to Roleplay Chat. I'm Matt, and I'm a game master who just can't stop talking about role-playing games. Today, we're going to talk about multi-classing, and we're going to try and focus in on the theory, on the philo philosophy, and maybe a little bit on the role-play here. Uh, today, I am honored to introduce our guest, our guest Jared, who, who is the self-proclaimed master of multi-classing. He is also a game master and player and one of the hosts for Monsters and Multi-Class, a podcast that you guys can catch wherever you listen to podcasts. Jared, why don't you say hello and talk to us a little bit about, about your projects? Yeah, yeah. So I, I believe I also mentioned that uh, Master of Multiclassing is heavily disputed. I think we're still working that out in, a, in legal courts here. But one day I will get that <laughs> trademarked. Uh, yes, so I am one of three hosts of the show Monsters and Multiclass, a show where we discuss uh, all, well, we're going through all of the multiclasses in 5th edition and determining whether or not they have any hidden mechanical viability or just fun character concepts, and also trying to focus in on the role-playing viability, because there's a lot of multi-classes that sound really fun from a role-playing perspective, but maybe fall very, very flat from a mechanical one. Uh, we also discuss things like monsters and go into their lore, how to introduce them into your games as a game master, as well as maybe some some ways that you might want to fight them as a player, but more so for, for the, the GMs there to torture their parties a bit. And <laughs> <laughs> lastly, we'll just talk about anything and everything D&D related. We are going over you know subclasses that get released for 5th edition, and overall it is fairly 5th edition focused, uh, but if it falls under that realm, we're probably discussing it. Awesome. Yeah, I've, I've listened to a few of your episodes. I remember when the Mythic Odyssey of Theros came out. There yes. was a few episodes there that you guys covered um, some of the, the new subclasses and things like that. That was, that, was, that was a fun conversation. That was a while ago, though, I feel like. It was, because we got to talk about the Mythic Monsters, and I was so disappointed that Wizards of the Coast just forgot about Mythic Monsters after that, because it is the coolest concept like that could probably be an entire episode on itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, if if we're going on this tangent, I might as well lean all in. I feel like the wizards often does this, where they 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 try something neat. I loved the way that they had um, that, that they had enemies in fourth edition. You know, the the monster manuals, the horde rules, uh, the way that they had like abilities based on die rolls and things like mm -hmm. that. Man, but like that was my favorite way to run monsters and i even incorporate that now whenever i'm running different games it doesn't even have to be dungeons and dragons like i'll, I'll steal that idea any day i'll run hordes in like whatever system i can at this point yeah but, uh, it's it's really been interesting as we get further away from fourth edition it seems like people are kind of pulling away from that concept of like it was all bad because for the last like I don't even know how long for, for a very long time since the release of fourth edition, it's been like fourth edition <laughs> was worthless. We shouldn't have taken anything from it. And now as we see fifth edition grow and, and become a pretty well thought out uh, game system, it definitely is pulling things from fourth edition. And I can always tell, cause I have a couple of, of friends who play and love fourth edition and they like see a new feature, a new thing come out in five E and they're like, Hey, wait a second. Like, <laughs> You all hated that when it was fourth edition. Like, what happened? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so, and that's fine. I think that's that's important. Is 
games grow and you know we've never seen and never probably will see another game that has the longevity that uh D does in in terms of just how many years it's been out and it's got a lot of people designing and putting thoughts into it um i it is always disappointing when they take good concepts though and seem to just like put them in the corner and don't expand upon them at all that's always disappointing yeah yeah or or even see you know at least continue that new status quo but uh it, it is what it is um yeah so i mean jared thanks for thanks for being here thanks for for being here to talk about multi-classing like like you said you're despite your legal disputes still <laughs> uh potential master of multi-class so i i couldn't think of anyone better to talk about multi-classing with today uh, but before we do that, could you talk to us a little bit about your gaming history? What kind of systems you like to, to run, how long you've been in the hobby, and maybe your your greatest role-playing achievement? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, or something well, you're very proud of. Let's just Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I started playing, and I did start with 5th edition, um, around its release which was basically going through the the rise of Tiamat and Horde of the Dragon Queen, the like first campaign sets that were that had come out. Uh, that was my first introduction to tabletops as a whole. Since then, say I played for a couple of years, but I've been uh, be, I've been a game master for six years now, I believe. Uh, we'll say full time, whatever that means. And also have branched out into other games, uh, Call of Cthulhu, uh, Mothership is one that I absolutely love and wish I could play more, and Eclipse Phase, and just all sorts of, of different games that come up, because it's I've got a couple of friends who love just trying new game systems, and that's always great to expand your horizons. That is awesome. I I feel like the story is usually the opposite, where it's like, I got a new system, I want to play, I don't know, Paranoia. I just can't convince any of my players to learn the rules of paranoia. <laughs> it's I I haven't found a game that is like as difficult to learn once you understand one tabletop game. They That's all fair. like like they obviously each one has its own unique spin and some are like you know on total opposite ends of the spectrums. I've played some games that it revolves around just a d6 and there's no class and all you do is sometimes you roll 2d6 and you succeed you fail and it's like the bare bones basics that you will get in a game and others you know that get much much more crunchy mm -hmm. um and at the end of the day it's still kind of the same flow of the game master describes a thing i roll a die I either succeed or I fail, and the game master takes it away. The rules in between, eh, you kind of figure those out. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So, okay, so D&D, 5th edition, mainly game master, and what would you say is something that you're very proud of? Maybe a recent game or like a moment in your, in your homebrew <laughs> that... Okay, so recent game, I am proud of the fact that I took a really toned-down fantasy set setting that is my home world of Pirin, and I specifically went in with the goal of, I want to have a very paired back fantasy world. I'm, I don't want like technology being a crossover. I want everything just being kind of old, old style medieval, uh, early medieval. We'll go with that. Um, and recently we totally went the opposite direction and I ramped it up to where my players were on a different plane of existence and are about to, actually operate what could be considered a mech in in game 
and it still feels totally in universe and nobody is is not buying it because it was just this perfect slow ramp up of like getting to an absurd level Um, and i'm really proud of that because i I basically asked everyone i was like are you guys cool if i just like continue ramping this up and then they were fighting a you know 50 foot tall bt rex and they're like yes we are okay with where this went That's awesome. That's all. Did that happen on purpose or, or was it kind of, you know, how, you know a, a few lucky die rolls and a few moments of inspiration that kind of just came together? It was, I'll say definitely a few moments of inspiration on, on my side where I was getting a, a little bit tired of the, the specific like setting that we had for a little bit and just needed a, a shake up and whatever I was consuming media wise at the time just kind of influenced me a little bit and when we needed to go to a a different world that i'd been kind of building up as this very different place to them um it it really allowed me to kind of set that hard line of like this is somewhere else you all do not understand what is going on and this is much bigger than anything you've ever dealt with uh which i think is important when you're getting into those tier three areas of of D&D um where you're no longer going to be saving a city it's like no it's it needs to get bigger and it needs to feel a bit bigger uh this was obviously taking that to an extreme and I've done it in other ways that aren't so out there <laughs> um, but I was happy that I was able to do it and still make things fit and and get player buy in yeah that's awesome it's it's such a great feeling too when you get your players to accept something that they would have otherwise not you know maybe 10 20 30 sessions ago would have been like, hey, no, this doesn't feel canonical. Like, why, why are you doing this? Right. Um, and, and I feel like that's not too uncommon. It's, it's pretty like a la mode, you know? It's, it's pretty fashionable these days to, to run a very like Dark Souls-inspired, low fantasy, high lethality. Like, that's, that's something that I think... And, and I mean, I might, I might be completely wrong here, but I feel like it's relatively new to me in the D sphere you know past couple of years people have been really really pushing this there's a lot of systems that have been doing that forever mind mm-hmm. you things like warhammer things like <clears throat> lamentations of the flame princess things like this where it's really high lethality really dark and grim um i mean i don't know if i would call warhammer low fantasy someone's gonna come at me and get mad at me about that but <laughs> high, high lethality i think is, is fitting, yeah, at least, though, yeah yeah it's you know they've got these these games anyway what i'm getting at is after a while it, it becomes hard to to take something that's so based on like realism like a, a right. real medieval town how, how do you how do you make a group of four people be able to defend you know an entire continent without sprinkling in a little bit of of mumbo jumbo magic or you know whatever you want to call it but uh but anyway good i'm happy i'm happy to hear that that's really cool what 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 kind of mech was it uh it's basically just a a giant uh storm giant that's the word i'm looking for and that's that's where it started so far i've i've stolen a stat block or two and basically having each of them control a limb as they will then fight (laughs) giant monsters uh it's that's awesome it's silly it's silly again i i've told them like once we go back to like the main world this is all just forget this this isn't happening again this isn't like the new standard we're we're going back but <laughs> being able to take breaks i think is really important in in any type of game with a set feeling i mean we've been playing the same campaign for near three years now 
And after a while, it's like, you know, you need a, a chain of change of scenery. Absolutely. And you know what? This is like the perfect segue that you're giving me here, Jared, because I think you're right. A change of scenery, a change of pace, or even a, you know, a change of class might oh. be all you need to, uh, to really spice up your character or spice up your game. So I, I think maybe now's the right time to start talking about multiclassing. Um, you know, I, I, I've definitely been in situations where I just wish my character could do this other thing. Well, they could if I was also a rogue. Or they could if I was also a paladin, you know, I, I could maybe frontline a little better or whatever. So I, I think multi-classing does offer a variety of interesting um, benefits to players. It also presents unique challenges to game masters, I think. So maybe we'll dive right in and start talking about multi-classing. Normally what we do on the show is we kind of bounce back and forth as to what our definition of the topic of today's episode is going to be. I mean, multi-classing, I think, is straightforward. Let's let's have at it. Let's see what we come up with. But maybe maybe there'll be uh, maybe there'll be a surprise in our uh, mutual definition of what multi-classing means, and I'm I'm all for it. So I'll, I'll throw the microphone to you first, Jared. Uh, when 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 we say multi-classing, what what does that mean to you? Wow. Okay. So multi-classing i guess i'm trying to like detach it a little bit from the mechanical aspect of it because there's a very obvious mechanical answer and it's having more than one class in a single character that's kind of the obvious mm -hmm. uh but mm -hmm. i would say a blending of skills that go outside of the expected tropes you will generally find in a game system so I won't even limit that to d and I'll just say any time that you are in, if you're in a sci-fi game and you are playing as a soldier slash scientist, that's multi-classing, even if it's not represented in the same way that it's represented in D&D. Okay, okay, I like this, I like this. So if we take that a little further, you're saying it's, it's having kind of two different tropes kind of smushed together, um, right? If, if I can... If I can yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say, and I guess an important thing as well, just to, to cap that as you add to it, is, uh, and it, I guess it does need to be represented mechanically in some yeah. fashion. I think, yeah, I think it, it's going to boil down to the system that you're playing in, right? It's going to boil down right. to, like you're saying, most systems, I'm going to have the asterisk there too, most systems have classes that define the abilities of their characters, kind of like level progression and this and that and the other thing. Um, so by multi-classing, I think it's safe to assume that we're saying you're double dipping a little bit or you're triple dipping into a couple of these different pillars that the game is suggesting that you play. Some games will recommend it. Other games will just have it as an option. Um, according to what the internet told me, I think on, on, <laughs> on some forum, on re uh, some Reddit post about how some systems even like encourage you by default to be a multi-class like that. It's a multi-class based system. So I think, yeah, th this idea of having different abilities or different attributes that are generally associated to a certain trope, but then combined together in fun or unexpected ways can... Or horrible ways. Or horrible ways, yeah. That's <laughs> ways that don't work at all. <laughs> let's, let's not say it's always good. <laughs> that's true. That's a really good point. Um, I, I wonder, th does this... Can multiclassing also make reference to like narrative and i think i don't think it can but I'm, I'm asking you to see if we if 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 this is interesting 
Um, Elaborate on the question a little bit. I'm not sure I understand what you mean by that. Yeah. So, like, if uh, if let's say you're playing a very narrative focused game, something like uh, <laughs> have you ever played Fiasco? I have not, but feel free to give me okay. a synopsis because maybe listeners haven't played it either. Yeah, yeah. So Fiasco is an extremely narrative-driven game. It's like, uh, depending on who you ask, they might not even call it a game. They might call it like an improv exercise. Okay. And and basically, you know, you, you, you pick a character at the beginning of the game. You have relationships, positive and or negative relationships with other people around the table. And you just act out scenes. You just act okay. out scenes with each other uh, that... that there's kind of a structure to them that eventually creates a narrative that ends, but, um, and you know, and you can win a scene by kind of getting the outcome that you want or you lose the scene by, by not. But anyway, um, most of the time that character, you know, it, it has very defined characteristics. You're, you're playing some kind of, not a stereotype, but like a trope, but sure. uh, an arc that can be expected the hero's arc or the journey of the re- journey of redemption or you name it, th- those kinds of things. And I wonder when we think about multi-classing, because it, it tends to be associated to, to a system, in a more narrative system, can multi-classing be this blending of two tropes? Kind of what I like about multi-classing and, and why I think that it it does work in like a, a, a really, in, I won't say in any system, but the concept works in any system where just because you're you're smashing two things together, you might not be getting something absolutely brand new, but it is still something and you're making something out of it, uh, which is using a lot of words to say very little, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but, I, but I think after hearing myself ramble on about that explanation of my question, I, I think there's, to me anyway, multi-classing has to be somehow associated to some kind of systematic like some kind of system yeah no, I, uh, right so that's that's going back on what i was saying earlier where like I, I think in some fashion it needs to be represented by mechanics in some way shape or form uh yeah. whether or not it's the the classic D route which is taking two classes and you know you get all of the skills from this class and all the skills from this class or if it's more kind of lightweight and you know you get a little bit from from this other side or branching out from your original position and it changes a, in a way that you wouldn't expect on just going straight on the path uh that that is multi-classing but i think you're right you need some of that mechanical backup for it to really feel like multi-classing or else you're just kind of doing a different narrative spin yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Was there anything else that you wanted to add to our definition of multiclassing? Any any last minute caveats or, or little um, things to consider? Footnotes, if you will. No, I don't think so. I think that that covers what multiclassing can be. We've definitely determined what multiclassing cannot be. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. So then, in that case, let's let's dive in more into into multi-classing now that we're kind of on the same page of, of what it is and what it isn't so i i guess you know a, a first good probing question for you jared is multi-classing wh- what does it bring to the table what what's the what's the benefit if i'm a player i'm considering multi-classing why why would i do that what, what does what's what's in it for me yeah so it to me the main thing that multi-classing brings uh, is the ability to just expand your character and and show character growth and change 
and back it up with mechanics, uh, you know, to, to keep playing off that part. If you are really, if you are a, a warlock, let's say, somebody who is, is in a dark pact of some sort, and you renounce your warlocky ways and turn towards a deity, and you multi-class into cleric, you're not just saying that you're no longer a warlock and, you know, kind of continuing down that path and saying, ah, well, you know, it's a it's a reflavor, so don't worry about it. You are actively making a choice that says, I am turning away from one path and I'm going to be focusing on another. Um, or, you know, merging two paths in another way. But the, the point is, I, I think when it naturally comes up in game, the which is the best way, I think, for it to, to really happen, is it is showing a, a large shift in character focus, uh, which is something that can be hard to get across because we're not all perfect storytellers. We're all working on it. Well, at least some of us want to work on it. Some people just want to goof around also fine, but um, it, it can be kind of like a hard line stance of, yes, things are changing. That's actually really neat. I've never, and honestly, I've never really looked at it that way. I, I've always ever looked at multi-classing as uh, another way for a player to get neat abilities that they otherwise would be like locked out of, you know, the class locked out of something. Um, often, in my games, it happens when you know one person's a rogue; they're really sneaky, and then someone else like, "Well, I want to come. I want to come sneak with you. Like, I want to be good at this too. And like, we can both we can both, you know, survey the the, the mansion before we we break in or whatever. Anyway, so it usually it usually gets generated. You see somebody else do something cool. Well, I'd like to do that cool thing too. But I, I right. really like how you, you you said. And sorry for those of you listening again. My my baby's crying upstairs. I hope it's not too loud. I might try to edit him out later but um <laughs> but yeah so it's it's a i like the way you're saying it's a way to add a mechanical weight to a narrative decision that a player is making that that speaks heavily to me actually because there's definitely been instances in games where you know you want to have that impact as a player you want to you want to say i'm abandoning my ways as x as a as, like i said as a warlock or as maybe like as a dark wizard or something like this y you can't really say that <laughs> if you're <laughs> gaining powers that are like right. associated to that right um so yeah, and, that, that's and really i think cool. it, it can also just be purely additive as well a mm. fighter for example something that is very vanilla in its class structure uh it, adds a lot by saying I'm going to take on a paladin oath and add that to my character and I'm, I'm now growing in that fashion because it's no longer just about maybe fighting for myself I have grown and I am now taking this oath that says I am fighting for the for the weak or to fight against demons or uh, to fight against dirty laundry I mean whatever it is you are taking a stance and it's not just something that's being said in character you are having, again, a mechanical representation of it. And maybe it's something that players, other players notice as well. And they're like, hey, I noticed that, uh, you know, your sword lights up every once in a while now. And the person says, yeah, it's because I, you know, I'm defending people's dirty laundry or whatever. <laughs> Gotta save the hop world off from, that. <laughs> yeah, save the world from dirty socks. That's gonna uh, be the oath of the the oath of soap suds or something you know? yeah i'm here for it <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awesome so so 
that's the that's some of the benefits. Are there other others other than you know versatility? Some of the obvious stuff: versatility and flexibility in your character choices. Um, what about from the game master's seat? What kind of benefits does uh, uh, does having the uh, the opportunity to allow your players to multi-class present to a game master? Yeah, I'd say that same thing comes from the the other side of the table as a a, a basic start there, where if you give people that opportunity to make a class change based on story elements, it allows you to introduce more story elements that fall outside of the expected progression. Uh, so uh, to to switch systems here, you know, if we do have like a a more sci-fi s game, and you have a a soldier, and throughout the this soldier's arc to this point, they've been viewed as kind of the the dumber one of the group. And one day, in some fashion, you you as a game master offer them offer them a narrative opportunity to instantly get a boost to their intelligence. Uh, maybe they interact with an AI, and it's going to be like that old it's not that old but that uh, nbc show chuck if you remember that um this is such a weird reference i'm sorry but <laughs> this guy sees like a progression of images and after seeing those he becomes like a supercomputer in his head um so that's you know just off the top of my head something that i can come up with but um you know that that then offers that soldier character that player a new opportunity to move in a different direction and that's really fun to see as a a game master to see when players are going to take those narrative hooks or when they're just going to toss them aside and say no that's not the direction i want to go you know i'm proud that i'm dumb because i don't need to be smart in order to you know have worth that's not that's not it or maybe they do feel self-conscious about it and then they need to to take that narrative jump after they gain intelligence and realize that it's not worth it and maybe you allow them to take it back for some reason uh you know all these things just being able to, again, represent that with mechanical weight is just opening up so many narrative opportunities. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I find that actually, as you're talking about this, I'm also wondering if there's, you know, it, it opens interesting opportunities for a game master to, by default, have all their players be multi-class. Like, I, I and in the same, you know, I've, I've never run a game where everybody's the same class. No, I don't I know either. if... I don't know if I'd want to. Um, I wouldn't stop my players if you know four people came up to me and said, "Hey, we want to have a bard bard party." I'd be like, "Okay." <laughs> I do it for like a month. You know, if it's like, "Yeah, Let's we got see. like a four four session game that we want to run, and it's going to have like a very tight narrative arc." Yeah, I could see that working. Yeah, yeah, but 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 it makes me wonder. You know, maybe there's an opportunity there to run a game. A little bit of background on me: I love running heist games. I love running very like thief. Thief guild type of go in, get the thing, come out, or go in, kill the target, don't be detected, that kind of stuff. I, I make I, I find it makes for really fun short stint games, one shot, two shot type scenarios. Good, to, really good for introducing players to the game too. And as we as we talk about multiclassing, it it's never dawned on me that maybe I could just create like four or five pre gen characters that are all rogue multi-classes of, of like you know you got a couple levels of rogue and then you got a couple levels of something else and it makes sure that everybody has the it makes sure that everybody at the table has the minimum skills required to achieve the very specific needs of a height yeah yeah and i th i definitely think that's a possibility you you really do hear a lot about the 
monoclass party where everybody's a cleric or everybody's a fighter. And I genuinely don't think that's going to work out too well. But if you start it where everybody is a cleric of a specific deity, and that is what connects everybody, and everyone has a level in cleric, but one person is specifically focused in religion, another person is the kind of the the holy order of knights, and they maybe go into more of a, a paladin focus, and they have one level in cleric, but the rest in paladin. Uh, another person's a holy assassin, and they're going to be a cleric <laughs> rogue. All of these things are now branching out and feel like their own kind of d- diverse class, but it keeps them tied together from a, a narrative sort. And I'm sure some people would say that, well, do they need to be a cleric at level one to get that feeling across? No, not entirely, but I think it does add something when everybody has almost like a shared background. And it really shows when everybody has the same first level abilities there. And it's, you know, not where you want to start the campaign, maybe, but if you're starting a couple levels in, then yeah, it could probably work out pretty well. And you're not going to have to worry too much about total overlap because people are going to diverge plenty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I think, like like you're saying, it presents an opportunity for party unification right off the gate, right? You, you're all starting from the same religious order. You're all going to have two, like one or two levels of cleric, and one or two levels of your other 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 of your of the other choice. I've played in a number of D and D games where we don't start at first level anyway. You yeah. know, our game master tells us start at level three, level four, that's when the game starts to get interesting. So it might be kind of fun to be told, pick pick two levels of something and you're going to come here with two levels of something that I'm going to tell you you're going to have. Right. And that might be that might be a, a fun uh, fun new flavor to the game that I, anyway, I've never experienced. That might be No, I, I can't say I have either. And I'm talking like I'm in the process of ending wrapping up a uh, three-year campaign right now and trying to look for shorter type games to to run like I don't want to keep running three-year long campaigns I want to have a three-month long campaign that has a more uh, structured narrative arc and being able to start from that point where everybody is together they know each other they have a shared background makes it much much easier to run a game with a specific story of you all are going to be working together to take out this bad guy and we're going to fit it all in this time period and then we're going to move on from it uh, so that'd be a really fun thing to explore i honestly might approach my my players to see if they're interested in that yeah i'd love to hear if that works out um that sounds neat um so obviously multi-classing has a lot of benefits i wonder though you know not all things can be good there there must be some downsides uh like like we joked about earlier there's definitely some multi-class um some options to multi-class at least in D that are extremely suboptimal but um I wonder, Jared, what are, what are the things that you think are the greatest weakness uh, for for multiclassing, whether it be mechanical or or narrative or or things like this? You you can go anywhere with this. Yeah, so I say the greatest downside of multiclassing is it introduces munchkins. Um, I love mechanics. I have an entire show that's based about talking about mechanics. Love them. I will tweak my character to be as powerful as possible and I won't feel bad about it. But uh, I will also always try to back it up with narrative purpose because that is what makes 
role-playing games as a whole interesting to me is I want a story to be told. I'm not here to just play chess with everybody or else we wouldn't need a story. We'd just mm. be moving numbers around. Uh, so a, a, yeah, I've definitely had games where I've had to ask players to tone it down because they're playing a, you know, fighter rogue gloomstalker ranger and they have zero backstory justifications for it. They just want to be random and also really powerful. And that kind of takes away from the table's enjoyment. If that's not the game you want to play. I mean, even with everything I just said there, as much as I don't like it, at the end of the day, there are tables that just want to play the mechanics. And for them, more power to you. Um, but it can definitely create a, a rift between tables if somebody is very focused on just the mechanics, not caring about the narrative, and everybody else is here for something else. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think it becomes especially problematic if that person is taking away something that somebody else has, right? You know, great point. Yes. Th there, there's a beauty in this game because even if somebody is stronger than you or is, is more optimally built than you, no matter what, they're not going to be able to charm, you know, they're not gonna be able to charm the diplomat in the conversation, or they're not going to be able to uh, shoot down the bad guy from really far away because that's your thing. Mm -hmm. But when you start allowing people to, multi-class and i'm not saying you shouldn't but if yeah if, if if you've got somebody who's who's coming up with this optimal build without any narrative reason behind it they're not playing some kind of backstory element or, or some kind of character growth and on top of that they're taking away the fun thing that another player is like the crutch that they're relying on to make their character special that that can be tough that that can be yes. a hard pill for somebody to swallow for sure no, I 100% agree. And I think you can definitely fall into that issue. Uh, I, I always have a rant uh, that is very specific to D&D, but just the idea that I really don't like Gish characters. They're characters that are generally spellcasters and sword slingers because mm -hmm. martial characters in a world of magic have so many issues to like get to that point where they feel like they are worthy to stand next to people who can bring meteors down from the sky. And there's so many ways in 5th edition to be just as good at swinging a sword as you are at casting spells. And it just makes martial classes feel even further away from where they should be. Uh, and again, that's not even just from a mechanical standpoint. Like from a narrative standpoint, it sucks when you're like, I've been training my entire life with the blade and I am a sword master and this is my life. And then the wizard comes up and is like, oh, I actually do just as much damage as you uh, and I can cast spells. So, heh, sorry, bud. Uh, you're you're useless. Yeah, yeah. That that can be tough. That can be, and and th that's kind of a system problem, right? That's, that's oh it's, yeah. It's hard to it's hard to tell your tell fellow game masters out there. Oh, you guys got to do a better job at, <laughs> at 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 managing that. But at the same time, maybe that's some that's a conversation that you have to have at the table. I I don't know. Well, it I, definitely, I think you're right. It is a system problem with, yeah. with fifth edition. You're not going to run into that as much with really much of, of any other game as, as far as I hear. Uh, but it's, it's tough. Um, and that's a say, I think multi-classing can definitely contribute to that, uh, where you just get way too much stepping on each other's skills. And I'm even encountering it right now where mm. I've got a, a party with a, a rogue bard multi-class and a rogue and the rogue who's 
basically like one level behind is like, wait a second, the person who's a rogue bard can do everything I can do and they cast spells and they have all this, uh, you know, social power that I should also have and they can sneak. And what am I doing in this? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's fine for the most part. And, you know, since they've come higher in levels, I think that the disparity has gone further as one, the, the person, the rogue bard recognized this and went more bard in order to avoid stepping on those toes. Uh, but if you don't have people who are aware of it and everybody's kind of just crossing over each other, it just creates a lot of signal noises to the question of like, why are we a party or like, how, how am I shining in this party compared to my other characters or players? Mm-hmm. And it makes me, it makes me beg the question and, and, I think I have an answer too, so we'll see. We'll see where this goes. But you know, what is it that you would do in that situation? You know, your game. You 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 have these two players. Thankfully, they've noticed it and they've they've kind of found a way to course correct for themselves. But is is there anything in your seat as the game master that you can do without limiting your players? Without saying like, okay, ease off on the rogue levels. You you, you know, like other than because. Ideally, we would allow our players to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously, with the same caveat of you, you talk about it, you make sure everybody's comfortable, safe space, you know, you have that conversation. But from your seat as the game master, other than communication, what could you do in your game design, in your, in your, in, you know, in planning for the session to help make people shine individually? despite an overlap in 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 skills or or powers or things like that it's definitely going to depend on the specific overlap to to formulate like a a scenario of sorts Mm. but i think a a broad idea that i've gone with is having both people required to utilize their skills at the same time so that way they both feel like oh right we are necessary here and without us both being here, we wouldn't be able to do this. Uh, so that's that's one way that I've gotten around it. Other way is split the party, and yeah. you know you you have it so that they can't both be together for this one specific scenario. Uh, I know the general rule of thumb is don't split the party, but you know sometimes it honestly does work out pretty well. And this group kind of takes this role, this group takes this role, and it allows them to to shine in their in their respective groups. Yeah, I like that answer. I, I mean, I'm also not the the biggest advocate for splitting the party, but there there are ways to split the party without fully splitting them apart. You know, yeah, like separate in, rooms. <laughs> yeah, you're in a combat. Oh, a trapdoor springs and a wall falls from the ceiling, and now you're both in the same room, but but the like main choke point's been cut off, and half of you are on one side, and half of you are on the other side, and now you need you need two tanks. One to right. front line on both halves, you know, something like that. I don't know. Right. But um, yeah, I, I agree with you. You, you. you split them up or you, you, you find a scenario that enables both of them, I think, is, is your best bet. Y- you could also even single them out, right? You can, yes. y- you can have a scenario where the game master calls upon a specific player. I find this is especially easy in social, in social settings where you're talking to an important NPC you make that NPC turn around and, and let's like stare daggers into one of the characters that you're trying to make feel special and say, he's looking at you. He's asking you this question. What are you, what are you going to do about it? Roll, roll a 
persuasion check or whatever, role, yeah, whatever is equivalent to, to some social skill. Um, have at it. So yeah, that that could be another way, I suppose. Yeah, and that's just a good tool in general because I've got all I've got a range of players at my table, and one of my players is just not very talkative. They're they're not the person who's going to step in in a group of people who are formulating a decision and say no 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 everybody listen to me. So oftentimes I will need to have an NPC directly approach them and you know pull them aside and have a one-on-one conversation with them in order to make them feel like yes you are here and you are part of this. Mm. And you know it's not something I do to them all the time because Generally, there's a reason why they're quieter. They don't want that spotlight all the time, but it's still important. And I think it's also important to the other players to to really see and and kind of focus on like, oh, right, we have this other person here who who also has a story and, you know, a a narrative purpose of being here. I I also how I guess it depends on how big your party is, right? If if you've got a big party, overlap will happen. Overlap might happen even without. Yeah, without multiclassing, right? Um, I mean, I wouldn't advise playing with six or seven people, but that's that's just me. Um, I don't either. I, my, <laughs> I'm at five right now, and that is definitely my limit for a like long style campaign for like a one shot or something. Eh, maybe, but yeah, yeah, four four would be my perfect. Like four is my perfect number, assuming nobody ever is sick or doesn't show up. Um, <laughs> That's that's the only reason why I I tend to play with five is because you know every now and then somebody can't show up and then oh you're it's good we're still four people we can still run the game, but uh, <laughs> I digress. Um, but I, I I like that you talked about your your you know your shy player. I I think everybody is that person some nights. You know you you have a rough week at work or rough a rough week with the family and and you're just you don't feel like you have a whole lot of energy to play tonight. You take the sidelines or or what have you. Um, do you feel like that person, you know, if that person multiclasses, does does it give them more tools in their arsenal? Is is it something that game masters should encourage people to take, especially if you're dealing with a player who's who's maybe a little bit more quieter or or takes sits to the sidelines? Definitely a, an, an it depends type answer here, but I have had times where people are quiet because they feel like they don't really offer anything with their specific character, mm-hmm. uh, which I mean, a lot of times is a, a frame of mind thing. And yeah, like I, I think it was, uh, I had a fighter in a game and they're like, well, you know, this person casts spells and this person's a barbarian and they're, you know, doing this big damage, whatever. And like, I'm not really doing anything. And those are times where I might consider encouraging them like, hey, you know, what if you what if your character took a big change and said, I'm not doing enough? You know, I'm not pulling my weight, so I'm going to learn this magic thing and I'm going to dip into wizard or maybe they get approached by a dark spirit and they get offered this power because they're like, well, I'm not really doing enough. Well, hey, I've got a an avenue for you where you can get magical powers and all you got to do is sign on the dotted line. And, you know, adding things like that can definitely, yeah, I'm not going to say it's going to make a shy player come out of their shell, but it can take a stagnant class or like just a, a character that you're feeling is kind of just flat and, and inject a lot of, of intrigue into them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really neat. I, and I, 
I know I said this before, but I really like that you're taking a narrative approach to multi-classing or, you know, that there is a narrative approach to multi-classing because it, it's not like you're saying, it's not just a, a change in stats or a change in, in the, the powers that your character has, but it can be a narrative springboard. It, it really should be a narrative springboard into something else, um, which kind of segues into my next question, which I think we kind of already answered, but we'll see if there's more, if there's more to it. Does multi-classing offer roleplay opportunities to people? Does it no. does it present? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, does, yeah. Does it present? Does it present a unique uh, roleplay scenario or, or or opportunity for people? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I yeah. I feel like it just opens up the door so much, and this is coming from. Uh, I always laugh about this. When we started Monsters and Multiclass, the the show, uh, the three of us had never multiclassed at the table and were specifically against it. We thought multiclassing was dumb and that people who did it were just trying to uh, to have everything and it it made things boring. Um, but as I've you know dedicated so many hours to thinking about it and talking about it. I feel like I've really kind of expanded my my view on things. And uh, from that is where I've come to this conclusion of like, no, it's it's big and it, it offers so many narrative options. And I haven't had the chance yet to undertake them myself as a player, but as a game master to, to give some examples, I, I have had the time where I had a, a fighter and he was on a quest for power. And that was really like all he told me he wanted his arc to be was just a focus on power. And after they had fought a, uh, a band of orcs that were just running across and attacked them, whatever, it was just like a, a throwaway random encounter that I wanted to, to give them to whittle down the party. Uh, the fighter who was a, a half orc picked up a, I talisman off of one of these these orcs um, in the Forgotten Realms lore. There's like this whole Eye of Groomsh thing that is basically the orc god, and I had nothing like that planned in my home world. But I had the I start talking to this player, and the player really dug that and and started you know bringing it out and having these role play moments with the with this I. And from that, I have built like. 75% of my campaign is having this <laughs> player, you know, like figure this thing out. I mean, it was just on a total whim, but uh and eventually the the deity had mentioned to him, you know, if you're after power, I can grant you that. I mean, you you saw the things that I I worked with, these these creatures that I have attached myself to. They don't understand the power that I am trying to give them, but they are a start. And I think that you would be able to understand it. And the player just ate it up. And again, since then, it has been a matter of escalation of tasks and goals and figuring out who and what this creature was and why it's able to talk to them at all times and you know things like that. And it has been just very, very interesting watching that grow out of what was just kind of a, a spark, you know, just a, a tiny moment that I thought would be thrown away. Um, but instead, the character multi-classed into warlock and has just had a huge narrative lift that's awesome that's so cool that's such a fun that's such a fun moment it, it reminds me so much of of a, of a game that i played in where i was i was playing a warforged in an eberron setting that uh that discovered 
uh, discovered like a core of another Warforge. And mm-hmm. I would talk to it. I would just talk to it. And it turned out that, I mean, the Eberron lore is kind of fun. There, there's this god of Warforge called the Becoming God, where all the Warforged are trying to build up their own deity. Oh, like, okay. Basically, like, we're going we're gonna to build the deity that suits us the best. Right. And it never even, it never occurred to me or my game master that I could, that I could have multi-classed into, into Warlock. But, but we were basically role-playing out the, the, the patron relationship, the, the patron relationship with this, this, this thing that was talking to me, giving me advice. The next level of that would have a hundred percent been what you're saying to have mechanical differences happen in my character so i i really like that i i really think people shouldn't discount this idea of of multi-classing no and it, it definitely yeah. brought up questions too from the players because when the the normal fighter who you're seeing yeah he was an eldritch knight so he had a little bit of magic but it was like really basic and you're like oh okay you know that's cute he's got some magic whatever but then tentacles start sprouting from him and grabbing onto creatures and dragging them into the depths it definitely gets the party going what is going on? Like, when did this happen? What What is happening? Uh, we notice also you're talking to yourself at night and, you know, we need to talk about this. And that is just, again, it's added too because that's that's definitely where I come in of the idea of combat does not stop role-playing. And mm. yeah, that's, I think, something that everybody learns after some point, but it is important, you know, just because things are happening in battle doesn't mean that, you know, it ends and... Yeah, like in a, a video game when you're you're wearing like a goofy hat in a cutscene, and then like everybody just kind of ignores it because you're in a cutscene. Like that's not how battle works. It's it's part of the game still. Yeah, yeah, and having people react to it after the fact is definitely you know players. It's part of a player's responsibility, I think, to react to things that players do that yes. the other players do. Right, have conversations with each other, talk to each other as players. Have role play moments about the cool monster that you, that the player killed in right. the fight or the near death experience that they had. But yeah, showcasing new abilities that people aren't expecting you to have—that's pretty cool. Um, another another like twist to that could be maybe you're learning from the people that you're with. Yes, you know maybe maybe you're like you said you're again you're I don't know you're a wizard and you're tired of being such a frail little person in the back line. You start learning from the cleric. You start learning how to how to harness the power of a deity to protect you and and fight up at the front. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind no, of no, no. You're fine. I I, I, but, I I hear where you're going, but no. I mean, taking that, let's say the the wizard. You know, as you're saying, regardless of whether or not they're they're feeling frail, I think that does actually fit. Though maybe they're they're recognizing their own mortality, and mm. so they turn to the cleric and they say, "Hey, you've got this religion stuff, and I've always kind of dismissed it, but I see you in battle and." I have to say it's it's impressive. I never knew that religion could do so much for a person. I always thought it was just a a give. I never realized it could be a give and take. Maybe you could start teaching me some basics and we'll see what happens. And then the deity comes down and goes, "You too are a chosen one, you know. Come yep. don some some metal armor and we're going to go kick some butt together yeah it could definitely create a fun relationship you know especially if if you if you kick it off with a scenario where two player characters are jabbing at each other they're friendly with each other but they're jabbing at each other because oh you and your religion stuff yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna dabble in that and then to have that character then turn around you know five six levels later 
maybe paying a pay a little bit more attention to it, build up the relationship in a new in a new direction. I think I think that could be a lot of fun. Um, it it could create really nice moments for those characters to bond together. Yeah, which I think as a game master, seeing two characters bond is like music to your ears. Yes, any reason for the people to fight for each other and love each other and care for each other is is a plus you know definitely no and i i absolutely love to see that and it's say to to bring up another example in my my current game one of my my players the uh now bard rogue originally bard paladin but that's another thing i'll probably get into in a second um (laughs) started off like despising a specific god of the realm and turns out uh one of those people the, it was the god of water that's really simple for everybody to get uh well a cleric of the god of water was in the party and he was extremely dismissive towards her and her powers and basically said like she's tricking you all like mm. no she doesn't have these magical powers the the god of water has no power you know i come from a desert there's no water i can see that she has limitations and there's no way that this is possible um until until he gets brought back to life uh, from a you know, time dying in battle and brought back to life from the cleric, it kind of makes you realize, no, this this person's for real. This is legit happening, and mm-hmm. I need to start respecting it more. Um, and that character did not go down the path of, of multi-classing in the cleric because of it, but uh, still just offering that, that narrative growth because they kind of recognized what another player was doing and grew from it. Uh, was was really interesting to watch and has been interesting to watch as they have really changed their character from when they first started playing. That's awesome. That's awesome. And and I think one of these benefits, right? Like having that introspection as a as a player or as a player character and, and thinking about how your character can grow by adding multi-classing to it, you're adding a level of reflection that kind of otherwise would only happen at character creation, I feel. Right. You know, when you're building your character, that's the time you're spending probably the most of your time ever. I mean, at least for me, that's the that's the longest in one sitting I'm going to focus on like the mechanics of my character ever sure. in my game. Maybe maybe if I'm if I'm like trying to pick a, a cool new oath or a new skill or whatever, sure. but, but for the most part. But then yeah, when when you when you circle back and you're like, "Okay, I'm going to multi-class now." I I didn't think I was going to, but I'm going to and and thinking of it and sitting down and having that solo time to reflect on the mechanical advantages of a certain skill or the narrative reason that you would be you know choosing to take a certain multi-class i i think that's almost forcing something on you as a player that people should be doing more often anyways you know people should be reflecting on their character the narrative of their character the growth of their character changing their bonds changing the aspects that make them who they are changing their um i i forgetting what it's called because i i freaking never use it the <laughs> the describe it the like lawful neutral alignment alignment changing their alignment <laughs> there you go <laughs> yeah i don't use some- it much either yeah, it's 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 something that people should be doing all the time as your character like lives and evolves. Um and I think multiclassing offers a rare opportunity to like that forces you to do it. Right. Right, um, right. And that's and kind it, of the point I was getting at. 
no, it, it, I appreciate the point. It's a good one. And to you know, expand upon that, I, I'll say this is like side related to multi-classing. As I've mentioned, I had a character, this same character who was um, abhorrent to the, the water god. Uh, they were starting off as a, uh, a, I think it was a rogue paladin. Sorry, that took me a second. Rogue paladin. And they had an oath of vengeance. And their entire thing was to get vengeance on this specific person that they viewed was destroying the economy and well-being of their homeland. And I had this entire arc set up for them where they were able to confront that person and basically learned it wasn't one specific person. Surprise, surprise, and other narrative twists here and there. But long story short, he got his vengeance and then felt empty from it surprise surprise as often happens it's like well okay i did it great but like now what and mm -hmm. it was that growth and that character realization that led the player to say i think i'm gonna renounce my oath of vengeance i don't think i want to do that anymore is it okay if i change my class and i'm like yeah let's do it you know it's our game what what does this break it sounds really cool narratively to me so i let him just kind of entirely rework his class and come out of it a probably like a different level mix of some sort but then became a rogue lore bard because it became less about the vengeance aspect and more about the i want to figure out what happened to my people because how did we end up like this like i don't think i'm going to solve anything by just murdering anyone who challenges us but maybe i can solve something by getting to the bottom of why we're here in the first place and it was incredible, and it's been incredible watching them again just totally shift their their character. And I'm sure if we did alignment more, they probably would have shifted that too. But as it wasn't the focus for us, but they've they've shifted their personality a good amount from that focus of of anger and hatred, and now just curiosity, which was already always there in the character, but it was really now blown up. And mm -hmm. it's it's just been so fun to watch them and kind of come to that that final conclusion that they're getting to and be faced more and more with these instances where they should be mad about something like, oh yeah, you found out that these people screwed over your ancestors 600 years ago and they just blow it off. Cause they're like, I don't care about that anymore. I just, I want to know the truth. That's what's important. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, and j just like not to get too deep into the mechanics of it, but did they just like, remove all their levels in paladin and, and and you let them dump it into something else is that yep. in, into bard that's basically yep. what happened yep i that's just let cool. them change it around and said like really yeah like, we can come up with a narrative reason for it and i did to to an extent of yeah, they had like a, a crystal that they carried on them at, from when they were a kid. And I was like, yeah, the, the magic kind of resonates how you're feeling. So your feelings have changed and it's resonating outwards. But, you know, I, I don't think it even mattered that much. You know, mm -hmm. like renouncing your, your oath as a paladin is something that's definitely possible. I mean, if, if, and I, I'm sorry, I really am dnd focus that's i guess oh, I can't that's, fine. that's fine but um you know looking at a, a paladin people will say oh it's deity focused or you know like once you are attached to that oath you can't be separated from it but that's not entirely true like there's no hard and fast rule that says you can't ever renounce your oath and if you do it just means you you know renounce everything so you know yeah. come up with how it makes sense in your game narratively but man be open to it because I am so happy I did that. It it really let the player breathe fresh life into a character they were starting to get pretty bored with.
Mm. Oh, for sure. And I'm sure they would have been chugging along. Like, otherwise, what do you do? You just killed the, the main person that you're... Right, you, you, you know, got, you've, you've, you've done it. You've vengeanced. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're no longer an adventurer at that point. You know, you would retire. And I mean, that, that could have been, I suppose, a valid, a valid path. For it was on the table. To, to retire their character. But if, if the relationships with the other character is strong and you've got like a, a good party dynamic, why would you sacrifice that just because they've completed an art narrative arc that right i, I think i i think you did the right choice that's great that's it's nice to hear yeah and that um, was a, a big conversation with them as well where they had more to discover like i i had told them like you know there's i still have plans for your character like they're like i think i'm just gonna retire them I'm like yeah but there's so much more that we can explore together like what will make it stay interesting for you because if you're getting bored of the mechanics, I don't care about the mechanics. You know, we can switch those up however we want. No one's holding a gun to our heads and saying, you have to play the game this way. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I just think that that having that openness and letting, as you said, like a, a character that has a good dynamic and has story that is left to be told is, to me, much more important than than any narrative or mechanical consistency. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that, that that's actually a pretty nice lesson to learn, right? For 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 the listeners. And I'm gonna, you know, forgive me, listeners, for for being a little bit like you know, most of this conversation has been a D focused, but I think it it can be applied and generalized to a larger scope here. But a a class has a tendency to sound like this thing that's just cemented. It's it sounds like, you know, you pick it at the beginning. You follow through, or at least that's the mentality that a lot of people that I've played with have. When they define who their character is, they define them first and foremost by their class. That's like the first thing that comes out of their mouth, if not the second after the race of their character, which I think is, is you know, it's maybe a flawed perspective. I, I think the class, while it is very important, it's important because of the skills that it brings to the table. It's important because of the, the the position it places your character in narratively in the world that you're playing in. And I think, yeah, this approach of looking at a class with a little bit more flexibility, I think the first step is multi-classing, right? Dipping in a few different pools to see what kind of interesting narrative you can create. But then swapping them out completely midway through a game, that's a whole other level of it. And and I commend you for doing that, Jerry, because I think there's a lot of people that would that wouldn't do that, or they, they they wouldn't even think of doing that. So that's yeah, that's that's awesome. That's that's really cool. Um, yeah. And have I you think done it, it before? Uh, have you have you done it before this this character? No, or is that was like your first time, first no, and that only. Was, that was the the first time that it it made sense to happen. Though mm-hmm. I definitely had it on on the table. I didn't bring it up to the player, but with this. Uh, character who is a fighter warlock as as they've become one um, definitely had it on the table where if at any time they like renounce their patron and wanted to switch things up like maybe just go straight fighter like just drop all of the warlock levels and just go you know progress down the fighter path I would have been happy to do that I mean it's it's all just numbers on a page yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely Cool, cool. Well, we're we're running a little bit long. I think we're we're at about an hour, a little over an hour. But um, I'm happy to keep talking about multi-classing. But I don't know if I have much more to say. Uh, but I'll I'll pass the microphone to you. Is there, is there any other, you know, final thoughts, final words, 
advantages, disadvantages, disadvantages, or considerations that people listening should uh, keep in mind when they think about multi-classing at their table. Yes, one last one, and that is that despite my love of focusing on the the narrative aspects of multi-classing, I think it is impossible to ignore the mechanical up and or downsides of multi-classing. And I think it is totally okay to come to the table with a character who is significantly worse than everybody else at the table. And it can also be fine to come with a character that is significantly better than everybody else at the table. But as usual, make sure to discuss it with your party. If you're going mm -hmm. to be coming to the table with a paladin, sorcerer, warlock, multi-class that is just doing absurd amounts of damage and is good at absolutely everything, then maybe make sure that's the game other people want to play before you take that initiative and and the that role of being good at everything. Um, and same thing with being bad. I mean, I've had players in in my game that were significantly underleveled, uh, like when we were all not we, when players were all level 12, uh, one player was level seven. And that was really fun because wow. the player the player knew what they were getting into and everybody at the table agreed, this will be a fun narrative thing because we're going to have to kind of protect this person as they are learning the adventuring life that we've already figured out and established ourselves in. And we had a lot of fun with that because we all agreed on it. I know it's like the obvious thing. Let's all agree on something before mm -hmm. we do it. But just keep that in mind when multi-classing is that it can introduce some variables that aren't expected with natural class progression. If everybody is playing a single class and continues along that path of their single class, you're rarely going to break just about any game you're playing. But when you start introducing multi-classing, when you start introducing overlap that wasn't exactly intended, then you can fall into some some traps of either being too strong or too weak and not every table is going to be happy with that yeah that's a really good point and i, and I think like you're saying multi-classing can be a blessing it can be a curse it's a powerful tool it's yeah it's a powerful <laughs> thing wield it wield it with caution but um <laughs> but yeah I, I think it it can be fun right it, it can be fun but like everything else in the game, it's a it's a team. It it, it ought to be a team decision. I I think. I and to be honest, I've never experienced a table where only one of the players is multiclassing. I feel like if it if it comes up, it comes up, and everybody's like, okay, let's all let's all like try to balance each other out. But I think that's because I play with people who tend to want to like make sure that everything is consistent and balanced, and, and that's very important to them. Sure. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that's a very valid point. Um, any, any other last, last words or, or words of wisdom? No, will? I don't think so. I'm out of wisdom. All the wisdom. We, yeah, you're, you're, it's all out. Good, good. That's great. <laughs> Perfect. We did it. Listeners. Jared has nothing left to say. <laughs> <laughs> Mark it down in the calendar, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, no, this was this has been a really awesome conversation about multiclassing. It's definitely opened my eyes to the narrative uh, possibilities that should be associated with multiclassing all the time. So I'm definitely walking away from this conversation much wiser than when I went in. And I hope everybody listening also uh, feels the same way. 
uh, before we wrap up the show and, and kind of give our, our parting words of wisdom, I'd like to uh, pass the microphone over to you, Jared, to, to say goodbye and to let everybody listening know where they can find you, any special projects you're working on, any things that you used to work on that you're not working on anymore that you still want to plug anyway, you name it. I'd, it's fair game, fair game to me. <laughs> well, I just want to say to start, thank you so much for having me on. This was an absolute blast. And uh, yeah, if you, you want to find the show, we are Monsters in Multiclass, where we have uh, much more mechanical-focused uh, discussions. So if you are a fan of 5th edition, check us out. Uh, we are going through, again, each of the multiclasses. We've almost finished them all. Uh, but we also talk about monsters and just game design as a whole as subclasses come out. And just, I don't know, goof around. It's, it's a good time. Um, but at the end of the day, we absolutely love to talk about how the mechanics overlap with role-playing because I, for some reason i feel like there is a war between people who like mechanics and people who like the narrative aspects and there's just no reason for it the the two are there to be happily married and in, enjoy each other's company so uh big big focus of the show i feel like so you can find us again on twitter at monster underscore multi, or you can find us on anywhere you get your podcast or check us out on YouTube where we just have our, our faces and stats and stuff up on the screen. So whatever, whatever works for you, check us out. Awesome. Cool. And how, how frequently, uh, it's bi-weekly or is it weekly? We are weekly for awesome. now. Yes. <laughs> good, good, good on you guys. <laughs> we, yeah. It, it we've used to do it like a one episode covered a monster and a multi-class now we just do a monster or a multi-class because episodes are starting to get to like two and a half hours and it was it was ridiculous so just one episode a week awesome that's great 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 so yeah i definitely encourage you guys to go listen to jared and the rest of his crew uh on mon monsters and multi-class go listen in you know whatever you're listening to this to on iTunes, Spotify. I think it's like 50% of you guys are using uh, Spotify these days. So if go, go, Whack. go find it on there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an interesting stat, but um, <laughs> that's, that's what happens when they start buying up podcasts. It's working. Yeah, it's, it seems to be working, but yeah. So I, I hope you guys found Jared's insights insightful. I, I certainly did. Um, and if you guys wanted to reach out to me, you're, you know, you can always contact me on Twitter. That's at role underscore play underscore chat. Or we have an email that's at roll or sorry, it's contact roleplaychat at gmail.com. You can send your uh, you know your your questions that are longer than 250 characters to me there if you need to. And uh, and yeah, that's it. That's it for me. So I guess before we completely wrap up the show, uh, something that we'd like to do, Jared, is we'd like to try to condense everything we just said in uh, in something insightful and like a, a wrap-up. So if people have spaced out and they were listening but then they stopped listening and now they're listening to us again. What's the big takeaway of today? Big takeaway of today is multi-classing is not just there as a mechanical tool. It's there as a narrative tool and be a GM or a player use it. Even if it's just the, the anticipation of it, the, the dangling of the hook, it is offering up choice in a game that is centered on choices, making the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And and to add to that, I think uh, especially a good opportunity to use multi-class for narrative beat is when a character is starting to feel dull, when, they're, when they've accomplished a narrative arc, 
that would otherwise make them leave the game or retire their character or make them feel like their class is redundant. I, th- I think that that's the right time to explore multi-classing into something else. Or if you're looking for an opportunity to get your, you know, your player and you're looking for new skills, new, new things to do, you're feeling like you, you just don't fit in what the party's doing these days. There's lots of sneaking going around. You need to be able to be sneaky too. Things like that. I think multi-classing is a good opportunity to Ooh. explore. One last one, adding on yeah, to that. Yeah, and and if, there's like a, if there's a gap in the party where like, you know, there's mm. no healers and you're like, oh my God, we keep dying all the time. Well, let me dip into a healer class and also have a narrative reason for it. Yeah, that's that's great. There's that's so great. many reasons. Everyone should, how does how does somebody get through an entire campaign and not want to multi-class? I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely hear you. That's, it's a great opportunity to explore neat and different things. So with that, thank you, Jared. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I hope you had as much fun as I did. It was it was neat looking in and talking about multi-classing with you. And uh, and with that, we will call it a chat. That's a chat right there. <laughs> <laughs>